Welcome back to the Boy and Island Podcast. This is part three of episode two from Sorcery to Utility, an exploration into the frightening and fascinating circumstances that will answer the question, how did the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant end up in my backyard? I'm your host, Andrew Hurst. I'm an artist, musician, and the author of the forthcoming book, Boy and Island, which seeks to ponder this question among many others as well as share my personal account as a survivor of the accident at Three Mile Island nuclear power plant that occurred in 1979 when I was just a boy. In the 40 plus years since the event, I have been closely observing the remarkable ways that time has distorted as well as clarified its importance as a pivotal event in world history, but also as a penultimate event in my family's history as I reflect on the strange, unexpected and beautiful things this tragedy coaxed out of us and out of myself. Now, these first few episodes of the Boy and Island podcast are an attempt to share what I feel are the most thought-provoking and interesting factors that determine how nuclear power plants came into being. I can think of no other invention that has its roots as steeped in a culture of violence, secrecy, and deception as the nuclear power industry, and to explore this history has necessitated a longer and deeper look at the violent impulses at the core of human existence and how we justify violence and the visceral qualities that fear evokes in us, particularly when new technologies are justly or unjustly perceived as an existential threat. So let's dive in. Is everyone ready? In part two of this episode, we left off in the midst of World War I, as it mercilessly pulverized the bodies and souls of a generation, achieving an industrial-scale slaughter that only factories minted in the modern age could provide the fabrication for. The use of the modern technology um, in the war was on a scale that had been um, unimaginable. And the experience of the soldiers then, of these uh, went bright and breezily into the war, very rapidly turned into this, uh, the abject horror. When World War I officially ended in November of 1918 with the Allied powers achieving victory over Germany, this would officially be the deadliest war in human history, with an estimated 40 million casualties, more than all wars fought up to that point combined. But as the world gasped at the magnitude of the atrocity, many asked what kind of civilization could have cultivated these flowers of evil. Somewhere between the process of mourning for the dead and the emotional zombification experienced by the survivors of the war returning to society lied a cognitive void that threatened to imprison the most precious territory in the barbarous theater of war, the mind. In a French military hospital, a young medical student, André Breton, is conducting experiments in dream analysis on his shell-shocked patients. Breton meets one soldier who insists that the war is a sham, that the bullets are only dummies, the wounds are merely makeup, and the dead are taken from hospitals and distributed at night across the phony battlefield. It was this fateful wartime interruption of his studies in medical school that propelled Breton to dedicate his life to poetry and art, adopting psychoanalytic methods pioneered by Sigmund Freud some 15 years prior, but to ever darker and more mysterious ends. 
But to what extent could these psychic utterances be rooted in the ghost-like remnants of a true, genuine memory? Our dreams and nightmares can achieve such a degree of sensorial tactility, flashing vividly like the epic films of our subconsciousness, as real as any reality experienced in waking life. And although, of course, human subconsciousness obviously predates the invention of the film, as film and photography would infiltrate and eventually subsume the modern mass media landscape, the 20th century psyche would fracture into a simulacrum in which a seamless blending of the real and the fictional is finally achieved. Though the concept of a simulacrum has its roots all the way back to Plato and ancient Greek philosophy, it wouldn't gain widespread recognition until much later in the 20th century when explored further by postmodern French theorist Jean Baudrillard. But the seeds of this social condition, I feel, are firmly planted here around the beginning of the 20th century, given the fact that not long after the invention of photography in the 1830s, war photographers Matthew Brady and Roger Fenton, among many others, were staging most of their photos, playing up their dramatic effect and increasing their sensational quality. Brady even rearranged dead soldiers he encountered on the battlefields of the U.S. Civil War of the 1860s, often reusing and repositioning the same corpse in a multitude of settings. This macabre aestheticization of the horrors of death committed by the photographers predates André Breton's startling experiments with hypnosis by more than 50 years. Both examples reveal disturbing and intriguing correlations between the perpetrators as well as the victims of violence. On the one hand, as a willful reconstruction or dramatization of violent death through photographic means, and on the other, as a traumatized casualty of war whose mental and emotional injuries render him incapable or unwilling to accept the horrible violence he has witnessed, so much so that his unconscious mind invents a fictionalized account to replace the incomprehensible actual reality he has experienced. In both of these instances, a fiction is conjured up to replace or disguise reality deemed either insufficiently real or too real to comprehend. As the 20th century barreled forth, what would constitute the modern perception of reality seemed increasingly more negotiable. While many needed to simply heal, others would see this uncertainty as a guiding light. André Breton, deeply moved and feverishly inspired by the aforementioned experiments he conducted, plunged headlong into the aberrations of the mind that he observed and saw limitless creative potential by means of snaking the drain of the soul to unclog the passageways into the subconscious realm of the mind, not as a means to understanding it or fixing it, but to free the mind and liberate it from the constraints of logic to achieve a, quote, pure psychic automatism, and coined the movement Surrealism. This movement, and its predecessor, Dada, that we touched on in the last episode, continued to loom large over the way contemporary artists think and feel, myself included. And as is common of most lasting historical contributions, it would live on as a state of mind. And anytime we find inspiration in random illogical occurrences, chance encounters, or poetry emerging from activities of ambiguous function, we are in the magnetic field.
I've learned a great deal from investigating the roughly 20-year period that followed the end of World War I by comparing and contrasting the socio-cultural dynamics of the United States and Germany. The U.S., along with the Allied forces, basked heroically in the glow of victory, taking a giant step forward and claiming its place as top dog among the first world powers as its factories churned out half of the world's manufactured goods. Germany, on the other hand, was essentially blamed for the disaster that was World War I and forced to pay crippling reparations that placed its economy and its morale firmly on its heels. Both countries, however, needed a very stiff drink and a wild night out, and they both would set the 1920s famously alight, buoyed by the breathtaking emergence of jazz, Broadway, and the Hollywood star machine here in the States. And over in Germany, particularly in Berlin, they swayed in rapturous decadence to the sights and sounds of Kurt Weil and Berthold Brecht, while unhinged sexual proclivities were always in free flow at the Weitmaus Cabaret. It's easy to see some similarities to the free-loving, countercultural 60s that would come some 40 years later. Both eras seem definitely like my kind of rumble, but the audacious 20s, like the 60s, didn't last. And beginning in the U.S. with the stock market crash of 1929, a Great Depression would bring widespread economic collapse throughout the world that would enrobe the 30s in a dense thicket of fear and anxiety that would infiltrate the determinism and strategies of both the United States and Germany for the remainder of the 20th century and beyond. And as the 1920s trepidatiously slunked into the 30s, a remarkable constellation of events would arise, further already withering boundaries between fantasy and reality to degrees of absurdity that showcased the pleasures and terrors of human imagination as it navigated this most tense and vulnerable period with eerie portent, by way of a series of scientific and pop-cultural sleights of hand, where once again our most precious asset, the mind, would produce, under duress, like Breton's hypnotized soldier and Matthew Brady's photojournalistic deviancies, vivid and astonishing expressions characterized by a kind of perpetual déjà vu, where existence is an anomaly of memory, and the future is a deceptive redesignation of the past.
Deja vu. We've all experienced it in one way or another. And it usually strikes us in a very personal, ephemeral way. And that it's even hard to put into words when it happens, making it a private nugget of our secret mindscape. The term déjà vu was coined by French psychic researcher Emile Boirac in his book The Future of Psychic Sciences from 1907. But the word hung around as early as 1876, and it means already seen, and it's also referred to as paramnesia. There's other forms of déjà vu as well, including déjà fécu, already lived, déjà senti, already felt, and déjà visité already visited. But can déjà vu happen on a grand scale? It would take the ability to communicate experiences as shared events. The early part of the 20th century was providing the perfect tools to do just that. By the 1930s, motion pictures and radio broadcasting were really hitting their stride as dominant vehicles for news as well as entertainment. Let's look at two examples that utilize both of these forms of mass media that investigate this phenomenon of déjà vu in provocative and mischievous ways, utilizing the tension and uncertainty that pervaded this period. By the 1930s, radios could be found in most homes, though it's hard to imagine now, but before the internet and television, entire families would huddle around their radio, completely relying on it as an up-to-date source for information and entertainment. I can't think about radio without remembering how I used to be magically transported into a fantasy netherworld by its mysterious transmissions. It's a Friday night in 1984, and I'm stuck at home with my parents in the living room. My parents watching TV. My sister, several years older and already a teenager, is up in her room, probably talking to her boyfriend on the phone. The fire on the wood stove crackles and sizzles. But I hear none of this. I'm sitting cross-legged, Buddha-style, eyes closed with headphones on in front of the stereo. And with some ingenuity, luck, and some tinfoil, I hear this. This was the sound of DJ Spen on V103 out of Baltimore that I could somehow pick up, even though it was almost two hours away from my living room in Middletown, Pennsylvania. This was music from another world, with real DJs on air, freestyling, scratching, mixing the aural collage that was hip-hop during that period. I would make mixtapes of these broadcasts and stun my friends with what seemed like some secret, esoteric hymnal of beats and textures that somehow only I had access to. And for me, the magic of radio would continue when my college band, Lester James and the White Flames, would play on West Virginia University's U92 station on Orville Wheels' Morgantown Sound Show and more recently on the legendary New Jersey station WFMU, 
playing live sessions with my band Razor Legs on the Brian Turner Show and Cremo Coil's Spin Age Blasters program. Such a thrill thinking some youngin like me could be tuning in with their headphones on, listening to me transport them into that mystical fantasy world. It was with this rapt, undivided attention that millions of Americans would have clustered around their radios on the night of October 30th, Halloween Eve, in 1938, to hear the Mercury Theater on the Air's adaptation of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. The radio was believed in America. That was a voice from heaven, you see. And that was the heavenly voice of Orson Welles, one of the greatest artists the world has ever known. Oh, and also, no relation between H.G. Wells, W-E-L-L-S, and Orson Welles, W-E-L-L-E-S. But they were most definitely kindred spirits in many ways. Now, Orson Welles was speaking the truth in this quote. Funny to say Orson Welles as speaking truth, since he was notorious for being an agent provocateur and a kind of practitioner of bending truth theatrically to his will his pure genius will. And he realized that with this relatively new media of the radio, he had a captive audience that wanted told stories, sold products, entertained, maybe even startled, but above all, they wanted to be reassured in this troubled time. Now, between 1933 and 1944, FDR, President Roosevelt, provided this voice of reason and assurance with his fireside chats a series of evening radio programs. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. To talk with the comparatively few who understand the mechanics of banking, but more particularly with the overwhelming majority of you who use banks for the making of deposits and the drawing of checks. I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days and why it was done and what the next steps are going to be. I recognize that the many proclamations from state capitals and from Washington, the legislation, the treasury regulations and so forth, couched for the most part in banking and legal terms, ought to be explained for the benefit of the average citizen. I owe this in particular because of the fortitude and the good temper which everybody has, with which everybody has accepted the inconvenience and the hardships of the banking holiday. And I know that when you understand what we in Washington have been about, I shall continue to have your cooperation as fully as I have had your sympathy and your help during the past week. Many said around this time that they felt the president was talking directly to them. And this provided a reliable through line of communication that was new and refreshing. This would have stood in stark contrast to the barrage of nonsensical, feverish rants the public was subjected to, and the almost butt dial like tweets of one of our recent presidents past that ultimately read not as reassuring or reaffirming, but merely nonsensical and pestering. Now, Orson Welles, being the highly accomplished theatrical genius that he was, wanted to subvert this soothing diction the public associated with these fireside chats and mischievously and artfully interfere with the public's assumptions. 
But he couldn't just study what sounded reassuring to people over the radio. He had to also study what tragedy, real human tragedy, sounded like when transmitted over the airwaves in real time. That's a marvelous sight. It's coming down out of the sky, pointed directly towards us and toward the mooring mast. The mighty diesel motors just roared, their propellers sliding into the air and throwing it back into a gale-like whirlpool. No wonder this great floating palace can travel through the air at such a speed with these powerful motors behind it. Now, a field that we thought active when we first arrived has turned into a moving mass of cooperative action. The landing crews have rushed to the post, the post and spots and orders are being passed along and last-minute preparations are being completed for the moment we have waited for so long. The ship is riding majestically toward us like some great feather, riding as though it was mighty, mighty proud of the place it's playing in the world's aviation. The ship is no doubt bustling with activity, as we can see. Orders are shouted to the crew. The passengers are probably lining the windows, looking down the field ahead of them, getting their glimpse of the mooring mass. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship, and uh, it's been taken a hold of down on the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get it, Charlie. Get it, Charlie. It's rising. It's rising. It's rising. Terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's running, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning bath, and all the folks between that this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's... It's, it's, it's flaming. Monday. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. It, it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now. And the frame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity and all the passengers feeding around it. I don't do it. I can't talk to people. His friends are out there. It's a... It's, it's a oh. I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. On his sit leg, there are masses smoking wreckage. And everybody can hardly breathe and talk as a craving lady. I, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside where I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I, I, I Listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. This was the live news broadcast of the Hindenburg airship disaster, which occurred on May 6, 1937, in which 35 people perished. And it occurred about a year before the Mercury Theater adaptation of The War of the Worlds. And it provided an iconic and widely known source of material in which to study and mimic. And here's some actual footage from the War of the Worlds broadcast, which starts out seemingly normal. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With the touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Campancita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. 
Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. And then, wait, what? Something going down on Mars? And slowly but surely, things start to get weird. Very weird. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. And through the utilization of these cutaway sections going back and forth from a seemingly normal musical program to the increasingly more serious news of an impending supernatural event, we're hooked. And now there's no turning back and no turning away. Do you hear it? A curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. Like a screw in the thing must be hollow. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I, I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole through luminous disks. Are the eyes, it might be a face, might be almost... But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large, it's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face, it, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, but I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is... That's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to oh, quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words. Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. And on it goes, with the fantastic and horrific drama eventually climaxing over its 60 minutes with the stark revelation that we humans were utterly helpless to defend ourselves against the Martian attack, and that it was actually microbial bacteria that stopped them, a bleak existential portrayal of human frailty, if there ever was one. H.G. Wells wrote The War of the Worlds in 1898, and this book, as well as The Time Machine, from 1895 and The Invisible Man from 1897 were way ahead of their time. And so too was Orson Welles, particularly with his choosing of this story that, like so much of H.G. Wells's writings, shows us through their expertly detailed fictions, signs, and warnings of what we actually could, or in many cases would, become. In just one short year, in 1939, another world war would begin, and its snare in its grasp, a civilization still shuddering from the previous one. In this light, it's not so surprising that the Mercury broadcast in 1938 caused such a stir, with purportedly people running through the streets in terror. 
Orson Welles perfectly timed his radio broadcast, fully understanding the powers of the medium of radio before the general public had time to question what they were experiencing. But fact would yet again overtake fiction, and the beastly, inhuman Martians of the War of the Worlds would materialize in human form, but this time as Adolf Hitler. Now, I'll spend much more time on Hitler in the next episode, but for now I want to focus on his strange and perplexing connection to another tramp like him, Charlie Chaplin. Which brings us to our second look at deja vu occurring on a grand scale in the 1930s, this time in the movies. Now, when I say tramp, I mean Chaplin's famous character, The Tramp, that he popularized in a series of incredibly popular silent films between 1914 and 1918, Pioneering alongside Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, a kind of slapstick physical comedy that relied heavily on exaggerated body and facial expressions. And, ooh, that mustache. Yeah, that one. Toothbrush mustache is a mustache style, shaved at the edges, except for three to five centimeters above the center of the lip. The sides of the mustache are vertical rather than tapered. Thank you, Betty. Now, Chaplin didn't invent this style of stash. It was actually popular in the 1900s in the States, but he definitely made it his signature. Along with his oversized clownish shoes, his cane, and his bowler-type hat, Chaplin's on-screen persona brought him huge amounts of fame the world over and was so recognizable that even now, if you close your eyes, his image is tattooed on your brain. But wait up. I see something else. Adolf Hitler was a fan of Chaplin, but there is no evidence that Hitler modeled his stash on Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin took advantage of the noted similarity between his on-screen appearance and that of Hitler, such as in his 1940 film The Great Dictator, where he wore the mustache as part of two new characters that parodied Hitler. Mm. Mm. Thanks again for clearing that up, Betsy. Now, this is the Chaplin film I want to discuss here, The Great Dictator from 1940. But whose mustache is it, really? It's kind of sort of complicated. Could it be that a clown-like comedic genius and a racist, bloodthirsty tyrant be associated with a similar visual motif? Um, yes and no. Well, Hitler and Chaplin were both born in the same week, in April of 1889, and they definitely had their eye on each other for some time. And yes, there are reports that Hitler was a fan of Chaplin. It is also known that the Nazis referred to Chaplin as a disgusting Jewish acrobat, to which Chaplin replied, I'm not Jewish, but I'm proud to be considered one. Chaplin purportedly saw Lenny Riefenstahl's chilling 1935 Nazi propaganda masterwork, Triumph of the Will, at the Museum of Modern Art, and laughed out loud while others sat in horror. Surely he would channel this experience into the script of The Great Dictator to devastating effect. Chaplin started filming in 1939, the year World War II broke out. So not only were the stakes high for such a controversial movie, but Chaplin's career was in a very sticky predicament and had been throughout his transition from silent films to talkies or sound pictures, which began in 1927, ushered in by the movie The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson. For his first official talkie, Chaplin would pull out all the stops with one definitive goal in mind completely take the stuffing out of Hitler. Now, 
Ey, der Filzensekt, Alter! Mit der Schutten, ey, der Filzensekt erklärten. Der Strenggelächen mit der Hultensekt erklärten. Und der Blitzensekt erhalten. Besick, besack! Katschuten. Und der Schutten. His Excellency has just referred to the Jewish people. This is Chaplin mocking Hitler's feverishly manic speech style as the character Adenoid Hinkle, who Chaplin plays with bracingly appropriate delirium. The other character Chaplin plays in the movie is a nameless, somewhat anonymous Jewish barber who is bullied and berated throughout by Hinkle's henchmen, who even attempt to hang him in one scene. Now, since both characters don the same toothbrush mustache throughout, inevitably, The film climaxes when the barber character is confused to be Hinkle and is ushered to speak in front of a large crowd who thinks that he is their fearless leader. Suddenly, Chaplin breaks character and delivers in his own voice arguably the most impassioned and earnest speech ever delivered in a film. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass, and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people, and so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes, men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts, You are not machines, you are not cattle, you are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. 
Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie, they do not fulfill that promise, they never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason. A world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! And with his heartfelt plea, Chaplin firmly roots his legacy with hopes for peaceful humanitarianism. And although Hitler successfully subverted Chaplin's expressive facial hair for his own deviant psychopathology, it would only be superficial, for the two men's life paths could never truly be confused. Chaplin's as a vehicle for delight, and Hitler's as a project of destruction. For these sleights of hand are cautionary tales, for we must always look harder and listen closer. In closing, I want to briefly meditate on the importance of this date as I post this. It's March 28th. 2022, the 43rd anniversary of the accident at Three Mile Island. For all the survivors of this event out there like myself, I stand with you, and you are always in my thoughts. Since moving back to the Harrisburg area a couple of years ago, I'm reminded of the natural beauty of this part of the world and the strength and character of the people who call this home. The whole point of this Boy and Island project is to use my life as an example of the ways that victimhood can be replaced by inspiration, creativity, and mysterious and strange journeys towards truth and elsewhere. I hope you will travel there with me. I'll make room for you especially. Much love. Sincerely, Andrew Hurst. <laughs>